As we stop for a moment of prayer, I would like to read to you a couple of verses from the 29th Psalm. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Father, we're so grateful that we serve the king, the king of peace, the king of glory, the king who came to give us life eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. And Father, we're so thankful that in this chaotic world where people worship all kinds of things, that we have our faith placed firmly in the solid rock. And Lord, we ask that this morning your spirit will be upon us to illuminate our minds and hearts with truth. Father, I pray for the individual needs of each person out here this morning, whether they be physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, whatever those needs may be. I pray, Lord, that you will grant peace and faith that you are in the process of meeting those needs. Lord, I ask that as your name is proclaimed today here, that uh, you will be glorified And where your name is proclaimed around the world, we ask that many, many will be drawn into your kingdom this day. And we'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. If you open to the 11th chapter of Judges, about 3,100 years ago, Israel was in possession of both Canaan, what today we know as Israel, what has been known historically as Palestine, and of Jordan the Transjordanian area. And this was the result, as we well know, because we studied through the book of Joshua, of the conquest that had taken place about 300 years prior to that, uh, under the leadership of God's great leader, Joshua. And of course, as we go through the book of Judges, we're looking at the interim period between the moment we are right now and uh, the completion of that conquest. And we have noticed that during that interim, Israel went through a whole series of bouts with apostasy. And as a result, God allowed them to be oppressed by surrounding peoples or even people that lived partly within the land itself that had not been completely eradicated from the land. And Israel, of course, through the oppression, Israel keeps coming back to their spiritual senses, as it were, and resubmitting to God repenting, and God has raised up deliverers, and we've looked at several of them up to this moment in time. In the 10th chapter of Judges, which we just finished last week, we read that deliverers number six and seven were raised up, Tola of the tribe of Issachar, and Jer, who was a Gileadite, about which we know very little, but they they served as, as uh, judges in Israel for a period of a little over 20 years each. And then as we went through the re- remaining portion of the 10th chapter, we see that when those two judges died, Israel went totally overboard, <laughs> worshiping every god they could find. It was almost looked like, like they were searching for more gods to worship. So God brought them a dual oppression. Oppression from the east in the form of the Ammonites and oppression from the west in the form of of the Philistines. And as we come to the end of the 10th chapter, we find they are in repentance again, crying out to God and saying, Oh God, if you will deliver us, do whatever you will to us. Whatever you wish to us, we'll accept it if you'll just deliver us one more time. 
So that is the background for not only the 11th chapter, but for the next several chapters of the book of Judges. Because what we find is, first of all, the story of the judge known as Jephthah, and then the story of the judge known as Samson. Uh, Jephthah deals with the Ammonites who were oppressing from the east, and Samson, Samson deals with the Philistines who were oppressing from the west. And so it's very probable that Jephthah and Samson live relatively simultaneously. Again, reminding you that uh, the Hebrews did not necessarily write chronologically. Chronology, or at least linear history as the Greeks understood it, uh, was not a big passion <laughs> with the um, Israelites. And you see this, for example, when you read the Gospels, because it is Luke, who, who is thought to have been a Greek physician, who, who starts out his book by saying, I'm going to tell you now in sequential order the things that happened. You know, and, and so you see this difference in, in understanding. That's why there's so, uh, there's so much question as you read through the gospel as to how long was Jesus' ministry. There are some say, well, from the gospels, his ministry was a year and a half. Some say it was two years. Some say it was three and a half years. And, and there's no total agreement as to exactly how long the ministry of Jesus Christ was because the Hebrews just didn't feel it was so important to say, oh, now year one this happened, and year two, and the twelfth month, or the fourth month, I mean, this, this kind of thing was not of paramount importance uh, to them. So what we know, uh, of course, so far, is that uh, we're looking at a period through the book of Judges of at least 300 years, because the term, or the phrase 300 years, is used, even in this 11th chapter of the book of Judges. So let's read uh, in the 11th chapter. Let's read the first 11 verses. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. And it came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. And it happened when the sons of Ammon fought against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come, and be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you're in trouble? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. The story of Jephthah is a rel relatively unusual story. This is the story of the eighth judge, the eighth of the 12 judges that God would raise up to rule in Israel and to deliver Israel. 
As we have seen, and as I have already noted, Israel was in desperate straits at this particular moment and greatly in need of a new shofat, a new deliverer. And as God often does, and we see this time and time through the scripture, he raises up the last person others would have thought should be the deliverer. And of course, the reason for that <clears throat> is given to us in, a, in, a, in another particular account later on in Samuel, where God says these words, God sees not as man sees. For man looks in the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, the core, the, the real being that lives inside that body. We, of course, live in a society where the body is everything, right? I mean, all these glamorous stars and all this stuff on television that you can put on your body to make it more glamorous. And it's a focus in our society on the body and almost no focus on the soul at all. No, no focus on the inner being. Uh, you, you, just as you follow the, these debates, presidential debates, this keeps coming out all the time, too. And so here we have, of course, God seeing something in a man that others could not see. The name Jephthah meant he opens or he frees, which I think is a very fitting name for what is about to take place through the auspices of this particular man. Well, like many of God's champions, Jephthah had a very inauspicious beginning. It reminds me as you read through the, the lineage of Messiah and you discover Ruth the Moabitess, you know, and, and you find um, Rahab. And throughout Scripture, God keeps raising up these, these people who, who aren't exactly born with a silver spoon in their mouths, you know. And of course, I think all of that is anticipatory for the birth of his son. I mean, Jesus wasn't born in uh, porphyrogenitus. He wasn't born in the purple. He wasn't born in the throne room of, of some great king. He was born in a stable to a teenager who was married to a poor carpenter. Jephthah's beginning wasn't a whole lot better. He was born in the region called Gilead to a man who happened to also be known as Gilead. Not, you know, that, that can be confusing, but it was not uncommon in Israel. Uh, obviously, all the tribal names were from Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, and so forth. And so you're from Gad, and Gad actually at one time was a man and would be a man more than one time through Hebrew history. Unfortunately, we're told in this passage that his mother was a harlot, which may mean she was a Canaanitess, which, of course, made Jephthah illegitimate. But to Gilead's credit, he owned up to his paternity and took Jephthah into his household, into his home. But as time passed, his stepmother and his stepbrothers simply rejected him. They, they wanted nothing to do with him, and uh, this is not an unusual occurrence, of course. And it seems that he may have been the eldest son. It could be that, that uh, this child was born even before Gilead married his uh, wife. And so the brothers will run him off so that they will have their father's inheritance and that it will not go to him, to this illegitimate son, who had been, of course, made legitimate in the sense that uh, Gilead said, he is my son, he is my blood, which would, of course, made him possible to accept or to receive the inheritance. So he had to flee, taking with him the only thing that the scripture indicates that he had, 
and that was military prowess. He was a mighty, valiant warrior. In the third verse, we discover that he fled completely out of the land that was controlled by Israel. He fled to the north. We don't know exactly where his hometown was. We're not told, but we're told that he came from Gilead. Now, Gilead is the region south of the Jabbok and north of the Arnon. It was the region inhabited by the tribe of Gad in the northern part and the tribe of Reuben in the southern part. It's very probable because of where the fighting takes place that he was a Gadite in terms of what his tribal background was. But a Gileadite simply refers as a generic term for all of those who live to the east of the Jordan in the plateau of Gilead. So where does he go? He goes to a place called Tob. Tob was located in southern Syria. So he was living outside the realm of Israel. He was living in the land of the Arameans, the people that we know today as Syrians, or the region at least. That a name for himself, his natural leadership ability and his valiant warrior capabilities brought to him a, a band of other men. Men who obviously had a leaning towards a violent action and were simply looking for a leader. And this is a very common phenomenon. We see it today in the streets of our cities where somebody becomes a leader and a gang gathers around him. And, uh, you know, this is for their own defense or for acts of aggression. We don't know much about the activities <clears throat> of Jephthah and this band of adventurers. The scripture tells us that around him gathered a band of worthless men, worthless men. The Hebrew word translated worthless can be translated as vain or it can be translated as empty in, in the sense of being dispossessed. And so these could simply have been other outcasts as Jephthah was. So a bunch of social lepers, you might say, have gathered together under his leadership. How are they surviving? Well, the implication is that they were surviving through banditry. They were some kind of brigands, highwaymen. Uh, it, it seems to be implied here. Josephus, however, is a little more gentle in his approach uh, to Jephthah. He refers to him as a potent man who maintained an army at his own expense. Now, that's a very a genteel way of putting it because down through history, that's usually a nobleman is responsible for maintaining an army at his own expense, and usually it was to carry out noble deeds, and particularly to defend his own land. Well, whatever the case was, he was obviously a man who was living by the sword at, at that particular moment in time. Well, Jephthah's notoriety obviously had spread back to Gilead, and people knew of his doings up there in Tob. And it became clear to the elders there in Gilead that they needed one with such leadership abilities and such warrior abilities as Jephthah in their war with the Ammonites. And, of course, to top it all off, he was a Gileadite. I mean, he was one of their own. Well, it would seem from the fourth and fifth verses of this passage that we read that Israel, they had repented. And now Israel is attempting to stymie the efforts of the Ammonites, but they're not having very much luck. It seems that apparently the skirmishes that they had been having with the Ammonites, they were not making much headway. And so they obviously needed a leader. It's like a team that goes out to play, but there is no team leader. No one bringing cohesion to the team. No one to say, this is what we ought to do at this time, and this is what our strategy ought to be. 
And so Israel was, was just expending their efforts with no progress against the Ammonites at this moment. So they obviously needed a leader. And I think because they'd had this history now of 300 years of God raising up a deliverer, a mighty warrior to lead them, they were kind of getting into the habit of looking for another Shofat. And this was their thought, I think. And so the elders of the, of the Gileadites, we're told here, uh, swallowed their pride and personally traveled to Tob to attempt to persuade Jephthah, come on down and be our military leader. We need you. Now, why did the elders of Gilead personally undertake this trip? Why did they go on their own all the way up there to Tob? I mean, Tob was probably 100 miles away. And in those days, 100 miles, you know, even if you walked along at a pretty good clip, it's going to take you three days, you know, to get there. And, you know, a six-day round trip, plus however long it takes to, to talk to Jephthah, so they're going to be gone a week or more. So why did the elders do this? Why didn't they just send messengers, or send a representative, a runner, you know, somebody who's into marathoning or something to go up and, and do this? Well, you know, first of all, I think the possible uh, explanation is that they already had. <laughs> they had already sent a messenger up there, and, and Jephthah just laughed in the guy's face. And so he had come back with a negative response. Or it could be that they had not sent messengers and they knew first off that we had better go ourselves because he is our best hope and he got a raw deal here <laughs> when he was living here. And so he's going to need somebody with real authority and real prestige, prominence to actually persuade him or else he's just going to totally reject any overtures that we make. Well, Jephthah's reaction could have been predicted by almost anybody. He said to these guys, you chased me out because I wasn't good enough for you. And now that you need me, you want me to just jump at the opportunity to come back and lead you. That chance, I think was his response in Hebrew. <laughs> Who were these elders? Well, we're not told. I, I doubt any of the elders were half-brothers <laughs> who had helped chase him out uh, earlier. Uh, I don't think anyone would wanted to have wanted to go. It could have included his father, but because of the circumstances, it would seem like his father was probably dead. Because uh, had his father still been alive, he could, have over, he could have overruled his sons who were driving the elder son out. Of course, it could be that uh, he decided, yeah, well, maybe we shouldn't give him the inheritance. We don't know. But whatever the case is, the elders went to face Jephthah personally. Jephthah's accusation to them, I mean, he's talking to the elders now. He's not, I don't think he's talking to his half-brothers, like I said. I don't think any of them would have been there. He's saying, he's saying to them, you hated me and you drove me out from my father's home. Well, why is he saying this to the elders of Gilead? It was his half-brothers who did this to him. Well, he's saying this to them because the elders had authority over the households within the land. And they could have overridden the half-brothers and said, no way, you're not doing this to this guy. Uh, he's legitimately here. He is Gilead's son. He has a right to inheritance, and, and you're not going to do this to him. But they didn't. They ignored the whole situation, turned their back upon it, apparently, and, and allowed him to be pushed out of the land. They didn't care. Now they care. And he's making the accusation to them. And since you turned your back on me then, why 
Should I come to your aid now? It's a very legitimate question. It's a natural question. It's the same question I think everyone in this room would ask if we were put in the same situation. Well, despite Jephthah's protestations, the elders would not take no for an answer. They were very persistent. They were ready to eat crow. Yeah, we did this to you. It was wrong and we're sorry. What can we do to convince you that we need you and it won't be the same if you come? Well, I think Jephthah was very doubtful and it seems to come through in this passage. He, I don't think he feels that. I mean, they threw him out for being an illegitimate outcast. So why are they going to accept him now? He hasn't changed. I mean, he's still the man that he was before, maybe even worse now that he was leading a band of uh, brigands up in the north. He was very cynical. I think I would be too if I were Jephthah. I think he has every right to be cynical. I mean, just think about it. You're going to accept an illegitimate cast outcast as your shofat? <laughs> your deliverer? Your God-anointed leader? I don't think so. He was suspicious that as soon as he accomplished what they wanted, saying that he did this, that they'd kick him out again. They'd say, well, we used you, now be gone. You accomplished what we needed you for. And I think he had every right to think that. So, to make them prove that they were true to their word, he requested that they give an oath before the Lord. Give an oath before the Lord and that they publicly call upon Yahweh to hear the oath that they were making as witness to the promise that if Jephthah came and led them, Jephthah would be allowed to remain and not only remain, but would become their leader. He would fulfill the role of Shofat, not just in battle, but beyond battle, and would continue to be their judge as the earlier judges had been over Israel in times past, post-battle times. Well, they were willing to make that oath. They wanted him so badly, they knew they needed him. And I think God is in this very, very clearly. Now, as we read through those first eight verses or so, you'll notice that there's nothing in those first eight verses to directly link us to God's presence. There's nothing in those verses to indicate that God had any direct role in what was happening. It doesn't say the Lord said or the Lord... Uh, you know, somebody prayed to the Lord. It doesn't say anything about God in those first eight verses there. But in the ninth verse, we find something interesting. We find Jephthah's question there in the ninth verse with a, a very interesting disclaimer. He says, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your leader? Will I become your head? Will I be your shofat beyond the time of battle? Well, whatever kind of freebooter Jephthah had been, whatever kind of outlaw he may have been, I mean, it's, a po it's possible he was a Robin Hood kind of guy. We don't know. It could be that he didn't consider it to be so bad since he was up in the land of the Arameans and what you did to the Arameans wasn't so important. Uh, you know, that's just all speculation. We're not told. But whatever was the case, he acknowledges Yahweh. He acknowledges the sovereignty of Yahweh. He says, and if the Lord gives them to me, he doesn't say, and if I defeat them. He says, if the Lord gives them to me. I mean, here is a statement of humility right off the bat. At what point 
the mantle of God fell upon the man Jephthah is very difficult to determine. It, the scripture makes no overt statement about that. But that the mantle of God came upon him is very clear, not only from the events which transpire, but from the fact that he is listed with the giants of faith in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. God doesn't list people in the 11th chapter of Hebrews who were jerks, but God doesn't list people who weren't his called servants who carried out his will. They may have goofed up because Samson's listed there too. We think, Samson? You know? But Samson died, I believe, a man of faith. And I think all of us can, can sympathize with Samson, not that we agree that what he did was right, but we can sense the fact that uh, the older we get, we get a little bit smarter maybe, and uh, we, we begin to realize that serving the Lord is paramount. And whatever faith we may proclaim along the way, I think dying in the faith is absolutely crucial, you know, in the end. Well, he accepted the oath of the elders, I think he was prompted by the Spirit of God to do so, even though it's not overtly stated here in this passage. He acquiesced, and he went with him back to Mizpah. There he assumed command of the Gileadite army. Now, whether in or not he brought his band of adventurers with him, it, there's, there's nothing to indicate that he did. I personally think he probably did not, because most of those were probably not Hebrews. But whatever the case may be, the final phrase of verse 11, I think, is pretty important where it says, And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. I think that passage is telling us that either this was a formal commissioning of Jephthah as Shaphat over Israel before the Lord, or at least it was his dedicatory prayer. O God, I come to you in your strength to lead this people. I am an unworthy man. I'm putting words in his mouth, of course. But, but I, I think this may have been a prayer, something that like what she prayed. And therefore, he assumed the position in the power of the Lord. And I think this becomes very obvious as we read on in the 11th chapter and as we read on further in the life of this man, Jephthah. Well, let's read on beginning at verse 12. It's kind of a long passage, so I hope you can stick through here. But it's a very important passage. It's a letter or a series, a couple of communications sent back and forth between Jephthah and the king of Ammon. Verse 12. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon, saying, What is between you and me, that you have come to fight against my land? And the king of the sons of Ammon sent messengers to Jephthah. And the messengers said, Because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan. Therefore return them peaceably now. But Jephthah... <laughs> sent messengers again to the kings, king of the sons of Ammon. And he said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the sons of Ammon. For when they came up from Egypt, and Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came to the east side of the land of Moab 
And they camped beyond the Arnon, but they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our place. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people and camped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel. And they defeated them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. So they possessed all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and from the wilderness as far as the Jordan. Since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people Israel, are you then to possess it? Do you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gave, gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God has driven out before us, we will possess. Now are you better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive with Israel, or did he ever fight against them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aror and its villages, and in all the cities which are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making war against me. May the Lord, the judge, judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. But the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent him. That is statesmanship. Would it be that we could have such statesmen in our country today? We have had in the past. We've had a few. Jephthah de demonstrates wisdom that seems to belie his background, at least what would seem to be the, the deal he got at the hands of his people. I mean, this man is attempting to negotiate peace with the enemy, but he's not going to negotiate peace by giving anything away. And his efforts, I think we need to note, his efforts are not being made out of fear. He wasn't saying, oh man, the Ammonites, how am I going to do this? He's a valiant warrior. I don't think he was scared one little bit of the Ammonites. Well, Israel today is saying, well, if we give you a little here, will you give us a little there, you know? His point is to save bloodshed. He doesn't want to see anybody die who doesn't have to die. In his message to the Ammonite king, Jephthah is saying to the Ammonite king, why are you attacking Gilead? What is your point? What is your purpose? In his reply, the Ammonite king says to Jephthah that he wants back the land that Israel has taken from Ammon. And he specifically gives the borders. He says from the Arnon, which I was going to use this overhead back here to put a little map on the wall, but it doesn't go on. <laughs> But uh, if you can visualize, here's the Dead Sea down here. The Arnon comes right about in the middle of the Dead Sea. So from the Arnon up the Jabbok, the Jabbok flows into the Jordan about halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. It comes in from the east and dumps, jumps in, dumps into the Jordan. So between those two rivers in the Jordan, they were claiming this territory and saying it was ours. And so we want it back. Well, this is where the tribes of Reuben and Gad live. Well, when he heard the demand that was being made by the Ammonite king, Jephthah immediately understood their game. They felt that they had a military advantage over Israel. We're going to beat up on these folks over here. And so they're looking for a land grab. I mean, they're going to take territory that they have never possessed in the history of the Ammonite nation. 
They're demanding land that belonged originally to the Amorites, not Ammonites. They're different people. Spoke a different language, worshipped different gods, had a totally different background. The Ammonites, as we noted before, were descended from Ben-Ami, who was Lot's son by his younger daughter. That ancestral thing that happened after the uh, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the Amorites are a totally different people. They came out of the desert. Uh, the term Amorite is a generic name. simply means Westerner. And was, these were people that were hated by the, uh, by the Sumerians and by the Babylonians because they were always a pain in the neck to them. They were a, you know, desert nomads. and Anyway, they're a different people. So Jephthah says, ha-ha, the light is on. I see their game here. And so he immediately sends messengers back to the Ammonite king in order to correct his understanding of the events. How did Gilead come into our hands and to whom did Gilead belong 300 years ago? Well, under Moses' leadership, he said, Israel came out of Egypt and Israel came up to Kadesh Barnea. And Israel sent a message to the Edomites who lived south of the Moabites, who lived south of the Arnon. So those two peoples lived uh, next to each other, the Moabites and the, and the Edomites. And he asked permission first of the Edomites, may we pass through your land? Well, we're not going to stop. We're not going to drink from your wells. We're not going to steal anything from you. We just want to march through because we're headed for Canaan. And the Edomite king said, no way. And he raised up an army to, to block the way. And God said, you're not going to fight him. You're not going to fight Edom. And of course, the reason was uh, the Edomites were very close relatives to the Israelites. You know, they were the sense of Esau, who was Jacob's brother, Israel's brother. So you're not going to fight the Edomites, God had said to them. And, and goes on and it tells them, they, asked, they, they, they made the same request of Moab, no, you can't come through. And so they went out around, they went to the east of Edom and the east of Moab and came through the edge of the desert and then they came across north of the, of the Moabite territory to, to the Ammon, Amorite territory. And they did not enter Ammonite territory in the process of doing this. God would not allow them, would not allow Israel to attack the Edomites, the Moabites, or the Ammonites because they were all relatives of Israel. So, God gave Israel both permission and the power to defeat the Amorites who were the inhabitants of Gilead, which you are now claiming. You have no right to the land. So having refreshed the king's memory, he asked a couple or three poignant questions of the king of Moab. He said, first of all, since the Lord gave the Amorite land to Israel, why should we give it to you? Why should we give it to you? Secondly, he says, since you have the land which your God Chemosh has given to you, why should we give you the land which Yahweh has given to us? He knew they understood those terms. The Ammonites would understand the terms because they believed that their God was, was their tutelary, their guardian God. He was the God who went before them and he was the God who delivered them, God who gave them the land. And so he's acknowledging this, not that he acknowledges Chemosh is a real God, but he's just saying, since he's given you those lands and Yahweh's given us our lands, I mean, don't you understand the point? Don't you get the issue here? What's interesting is uh, to discover that the influence the Moabites had on the Ammonites. Because we're told in Scripture that Chemosh was the god of the Moabites. And yet he is here being called the god of the Ammonites. But we need to remember 
that Moab and Ammon were half-brothers. Moab was born of Lot's older daughter by Lot and Ammon of his younger daughter by Lot. So both were born out of incest, same father, mothers who are sisters who came out of their own father. I mean, they are very closely related. So anyway, they have the same God. What's interesting is that not only does, does the scripture support this, but the Moabite stone does. In the 19th century over in the land of Jordan, they dug up a stone called the Moabite stone on which it has written that Chemosh is the god of the Moabites. Now, it's just one of the numerous archaeological discoveries that absolutely validate the statements of scripture. And of course, in 1 Kings 11, we read this phrase, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab. That's another story, of course, but uh, the point is here, it's acknowledged that Chemosh was the god of Moab. We don't know much about the character of, of uh, Chemosh. All we know that he was a savage war god and that his name may have meant subduer. Well, let me just point out the other two questions that were asked and then we'll have to uh, pick this up next week. But he says, thirdly, if the Moabites who had a better claim to this land than you do did not contest it, what right do you have to contest it? And then fourthly, you know, it just with astonishment, he says, you have not made claim to this land in 300 years, so why are you claiming it now? I thought about this morning, I think I'd be sort of like some people in Canada laying claim to New England, you know, because sometime in the past, you know, their relatives lived up there north of, of uh, the St. Lawrence River and thought about the land south of it, and so because they thought about it, they, then they should have claim to it, you know, like Canada declaring that today they want New England. That's the same kind of situation that's here. They never, this was never their land. So what right did they have to it? They had no right to it. And Jephthah, you see, is not hoodwinked at all. And I, I cannot help but believe that Jephthah's negotiations were guided by the Spirit of God because he seems to have wisdom beyond the normal wisdom of that day and certainly beyond the normal negotiating capacity of the day. And it's just wonderful to have these negotiations just written right out here for us, isn't it? Aha, uh -huh, so that's how they went back and forth in those days. Messenger up, messenger back, messenger up, messenger back. How would you like to have been the messenger? <laughs> Walking into the enemy camp? <laughs> Probably wouldn't have been a lot of fun. <laughs> Especially if you had a message that wasn't too agreeable <laughs> to them. But anyway, as we'll see, uh, the Ammonite king just turns the whole thing off. Uh, he doesn't care about reason. He's not here to reason with Jephthah. He's here to take the land. And so Jephthah clearly makes this a spiritual warfare <laughs> because as you read at the end there, he says, may the judge with a capital J, the eternal Shofat, settle this issue. So now it's not just a physical war, it's a spiritual war and very clearly so. Well, we'll pick that up next week from there.